In the mid-1980s, as a children's pastor, I took a large group of kids on a day camp to the beach, and I was very safety conscious. I, uh, we were down in Huntington Beach, and I was very safety conscious. I said, you must stay with your leaders. You must be really careful when you go into the water. And I was, I was pretty hyper about it. But then I went into the ocean to go swimming, and I think I overestimated my skills, and I got caught in a riptide. And I didn't know the rules about getting out of a riptide, so I was kind of frantic. I got a little panicky. I, I frantically waved for the, the lifeguard who mercifully came out and rescued me in front of the entire group. <laughs> My group wasn't so merciful. I got ridiculed. I got a bit of grief for that one. But the lifeguard never made fun of me, took it very seriously, and brought me safely to shore, very mercifully. In Jude 22 and 23, we are exhorted, be merciful, be merciful, that the church should show mercy to all, that those who are shown mercy in Christ must mercifully help others cling to Christ. When you are in a rescue operation, mercy is crucial. Mercy is necessary. Mercy is called for. Now, in a general sense, in a generic sense, mercy is compassion, and it's where you alleviate someone's suffering in some way. You might give them food or water or money or housing, whatever is their need in the moment. But biblical mercy goes deeper. It goes down to the heart's. And it's, it's this compassion, it's this kindness where you deserve punishment, you deserve an outcome, and you don't get it. You are shown compassion. This is where God holds back his wrath against your sin and forgives you. That's biblical mercy. We know God is merciful. His mercy is just sprinkled throughout the entire Bible. It's the mercy that, that led David, after his heinous sin, led David in Psalm 51 to cry out to God, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Forgive me. This is why Isaiah says, Let the wicked forsake their ways. And the unrighteous their thoughts and let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and will freely pardon. He forgives. In Jesus' ministry, through the, through the Gospels, you see it. The two blind men sitting by the side of the road and they hear that Jesus is coming by and they cry out, Lord, Son of David, basically God, you're the Messiah, you're the promised deliverer, you're the one who can save Please have mercy on us. Tax collector stood at a distance, not even able to lift his eyes up to heaven because he was so convicted of his sins. And he, and he beats his chest in, in grief over his sins and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The mercy of God is deep for those who confess their sins to him. This is why Paul could say in First. Timothy 1, I was shown mercy. I was, I was the chief of sinners. I, I was the worst of sinners. But Christ Jesus 
showed me mercy to display his perfect patience as an example for those who would inherit eternal life, for those who would believe in him and receive mercy. This is what God does. God alleviates the misery that sin <clears throat> brings into your life. He, he eases the suffering from sin. He, he holds back the wrath you deserve. And, and God is not a universalist. He does this for those who come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And for the person who comes to him that has been drawn to him by his mercy and by his love, he says, I will never cast you out. He forgives. He, he shows mercy. He holds back the wrath that we deserve. That's biblical mercy. But here, we're being told to show mercy. What does it mean for you to show mercy? What does it mean for you to be merciful? For you to have mercy on someone means that you, you notice the situation they're in. And I'm talking about biblical mercy, the Jude mercy. For you to have biblical mercy on someone, it means that you see the situation they're in because of their sin and you have immediate regard for them, like you want to help them right away and you feel for them and mercy is not just a feeling, you act upon it. You have mercy on them because you feel for them and do something to help them. And this is what Jude is calling us to do. It's right in line with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes where he says in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful. For they shall receive mercy. Jude is he's just drenched in mercy. Beginning in verse 2 in Jude, we see that it's a prayer. May, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Mercy in abundance. And then in verse 21, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, that those that are saved in Christ, those that have the righteousness of Christ credited to them by grace through faith, are, are saved. And they're, and they're being saved, and they will be saved. And we are waiting now for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, We're waiting for the full and final exhibition of God's mercy towards us. Jude is calling us to contend mercifully. In a contentious world, as, as enemies infiltrate the church, that slaves of Christ know that they are chosen by God, they are kept by Christ, and they must contend for the faith, knowing that God judges evil, but also knowing that we need to persevere with mercy, and that's what we've been seeing since verse 17. And next week, we'll look at the last two verses, this doxology of doxologies, in verses 24 and 25, trusting God's promise, he will do what he said he will do. There are five imperatives in Jude. We have looked at two. These five imperatives anchor the exhortation to persevere. And first we saw it in, in verses 17 and 19. We saw remember. That was the first imperative. Remember God's word. Believe the predictions of the apostles. Beware the practices of the apostates. Keep God's word front of mind. Hear it and do it. And then we saw the second imperative last week in verses 20 and 21. Keep. And these are all plural. These are to the church, the collective church, that we are to do this together. We are to do this individually as members of the church. But we are to do this also corporately as a church. Keep yourselves in God's love. And that means that you will be 
building up in God's word and praying for God's will and waiting for God's son to return. Today we look at these last three imperatives. Have mercy, save, and have mercy. One is repeated twice and then we have the word saved in the middle and it focuses on the primary point. The church must show mercy to all. This is all saying be merciful, be merciful. And we are being told to be merciful to three groups. First, we're being told to be merciful to the doubting in verse 22, and those in danger in verse 23, and then those defiled in verse 23. And they really move from the lesser to the greater. It's, it really starts with the doubting, and then there's a, there's a steep, steep drop-off after that. First, we are to remind the doubting. Remind the doubting. This might be the most important point for Grace Church to, to grasp today that you would, would resolve to remind the doubting. Verse 22 tells us, have mercy on those who doubt. It's a brief verse. It's telling us to do something. It's commanding us to do something. Have mercy on those who doubt. To doubt means to be conflicted in your mind, to be conflicted in your heart. The Greek word means to judge. It means to dispute. You're literally having to fight in your own heart and mind over something. You are wavering. You are hesitating between two opinions. This is describing people who, who believe, yet are confused. And they're confused by the false teaching that has infiltrated the church. They're confused by the ungodly living of those who are bringing the false teaching. You'll remember that Jude primarily points out not the content of the false teaching, but the ungodliness of the lives of those who are bringing the false teaching. These are people that believe, yet we're confused. And they're wondering, I'm hearing this. I'm hearing this preached, and I'm hearing this over here. What am I supposed to do with it? They, they, they conflict. What am I, what am I supposed to do? I, I see some people saying, it's okay to, to live in a sinful way. What am I supposed to do with that? And they're, they're wavering, they're hesitating, they're, they're doubting. In James chapter 1, James, the brother of Jude, also a slave of Christ, doulos, servant of Christ, he says in verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, if you're not sure what to do, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. God will grant that prayer. But verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is like Ephesians 4, where you're tossed to and fro by every wind and wave of doctrine. Verse 7 tells us that that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Going back and forth, conflicted in heart and mind, hesitating between two options and two opinions, and, and they need compassion. The sincere doubter needs compassion. They need to be reminded of the truth. The kind of truth that Titus chapter 3 speaks of. In Titus 3, beginning at verse 1, you notice that Paul is writing to Titus and he says in, in chapter 3, verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, 
to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. He's just describing the Christian life in, in some variety of phrases here. And he says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hating, hated by others and hating one another. But, verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, he's speaking to believers, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. His mercy is strong towards those who confess their sins. Some of you might be thinking, hey, is this kind of like doubting Thomas? You know, you've heard of doubting Thomas, right? Look at John Chapter 20, in John 20, post-resurrection, the resurrected Christ has appeared to his apostles. And in John 20, verse 24, we read these words. Now Thomas, one of the 12, one of the apostles called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Like, the resurrection is true. Jesus came back to life. He died for our sins on the cross, and he rose from the dead, just like he said he would. But Thomas said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. A lot of people want to call him Doubting Thomas. He's not doubting Thomas. That's incorrect. He didn't doubt. He rejected the resurrection outright. He was not a believer right then. He, he, was, he was living in unbelief in that moment. He's not, he's not doubting Thomas. He's unbelieving Thomas. In fact, in the same passage, we read this in, in John 20, verse 26, eight days later. The disciples are inside again, and Thomas is with them this time. And the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my, my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side, and do not disbelieve, but believe. There are some translations that translate that incorrectly and say, Do not be doubting, but believe. The, the Greek word there is to be unbelieving. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. And here is what happened. In that moment, in that instance, Thomas gets saved. He says, my Lord and my God. He gives a profession of faith in the resurrected Christ. And Jesus says to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's you and I. If you believe, that's you and I. In Matthew 28, Another instance where the resurrected Christ has gathered his apostles, and we read in Matthew 28, 16, very end of the gospel, verse 16, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Not Thomas, someone else, others amongst the apostles. The 11 worshiped, but some doubted, and what did Jesus do? He reassures them with the Great Commission. 
Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He reassures them mercifully, those who are doubting. A lot of believers struggle with doubts. It might be you today. What this tells us is that faith can exist amidst uncertainty, but that God wants you to have certainty. And you might be vacillating between various degrees of confidence even today in, in the Word of God. And the Bible is no less true because you are wavering. The Bible is fixed, it is pure, it is perfect, it is true, it is inspired, it is inerrant, it is infallible, it is conscience-binding, it is authoritative, it is permanent, it is eternal, and it doesn't change because your mind changes. But Many people believe but struggle with doubts, and it could be you today. What do you need? You need mercy from the church. What if you are a believer and, and you find yourself like this? You say, you know what? I'm in trouble. I, I'm in a bad spot. I'm in a tight spot. My sins have overtaken me. I'm convicted of my sins. I, I don't know where to turn. I feel ashamed. What, what should I do? Many Christians feel this way. And many Christians start to doubt. They start to doubt if they're really a believer. They start to doubt if the Bible's really true. They start to doubt... If, if God's going to really keep them or reject them, what do you do? What if that's you today? What, what do you do? You process it in the context of the local church where you are known and loved and cared for, that you, that you, you talk it out in the context of the local church. First, you, you tell it to God. Tell God the trouble. Pour out your heart to him. Pray. Tell him. Secondly, you need to tell yourself the truth. You know, give yourself large doses of, of scripture. Give yourself an IV of scripture. Tell yourself the truth. But then also you need to talk to a friend. You need to talk to someone about this. Grace Church must be filled with merciful people willing to help those with doubts. Those struggling with doubts. Like, if you're doubting today, if this is you, and you're doubting today, you're like, I am struggling with doubt. Well, then let the word of God and let the people of God help you. Let them help you. This is the first and foremost and, and really the biggest group of people would be in this category. Remind the doubting. Remind them how good God is, how merciful he is. He is a keeping God. If you're a Christian, you are kept by Jesus Christ. Remind the doubting. That's merciful. If you remind the doubting, you're being merciful. Say, I'm doing the word of God. I'm doing what it says. Now there's the steep cliff. The last one's worse, but this one is bad. Secondly, second point is that you need to rescue those in danger. Rescue those in danger. Verse 23 says, Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Literally, they're caught. You need to mercifully rescue them. They're in error. They're, they need urgent care. They're not doubting. They're drowning. This harkens 
back to Zechariah 3. In verse 1, where we read that Joshua the high priest is standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord says to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a bland brand plucked from the fire? A brand plucked from the fire. He's saying, I have mercy on Joshua. I've rescued him. Amos even says that there are some that were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. There are some that received the mercy of God and said, you know what, we're going to go our own way. We know better than God. There's a lot of people that do that, right? As I was processing through this passage, the first person I thought of when I, in the Bible, when it says, save those who are, you know, in the fire, like, pluck them out of the fire, I thought of someone who didn't want to do that. I thought of Jonah. And God says, go preach to Jonah, but tell them that unless they repent, they're going to be overthrown. He's like, I don't want to do that. I know better than God. I'm going to go and run away the other direction. And we all know what happened. And even, even when it all you know, came back around and, and he did what God said to do and, and they repented, he goes and has a, pitches a fit on a little hill under a little tree because he says that wasn't fair. He didn't want to show mercy. If people were in a burning building and you're walking by the burning building, aren't you going to go run inside and help people? People caught inside? That's what firefighters do, right? They're going to show up. What if no one's there? You're going to go in. You might have heard of Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And if that's all you know about it, you've probably misjudged that sermon. You go, oh, he's a fire and brimstone sermon. I'm like, you have never read Jonathan Edwards then. And you don't know what he did. He spoke in a monotone as he read a manuscript. Now, he was passionate but he, he wasn't just firing out at everyone. But what he was telling them is if, if it weren't for the mercy of God, you would drop into hell this very moment. You're like a spider dangling from the, the thinnest of spider webs over the precipice of, of hell. And if it were not for the mercy of God, you would drop into hell. Snatch them out of the fire. God could use you as a recipient of mercy to pluck brands from the fire. One time I was over at the Tufton Marketplace. I was with a brother in Christ. We were, we were sitting there having some coffee or what have you and talking, and, and uh, we were next to a, a big uh, a fountain. And there was a little girl that was walking on the edge of the fountain, unsafe. And I'm like, where's the mom? Where's the dad? And she's walking along the edge of the fountain. I'm like, I'm going to fall in. She falls in. And me and my friend kind of jump up, and we're like kind of frozen in time. And all of a sudden, this guy, out of the corner of our eyes, comes flying through the air, swoops into the fountain, grabs the baby girl, and says, got her. And we're like, you overplayed that. Okay, you are the hero, okay? You overplayed that rescue. You are the hero. But he did something. We stood there. We were frozen. We were wondering what we were going to do. He needed to act right then. 
She was little. The water was deeper than her. You, you need to, if you're going to do this, if you're going to mercifully help people that, whose souls are in danger, you need to take decisive action where you don't wait. You, you fly through the air and jump into the fountain. You're careful about it, but you're decisive. And it's timely. It's now. Now. James says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, whoever brings a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, only Jesus saves. Only Jesus forgives sins so that you would be able to go to heaven. But he uses us. He's pleased to use his instruments of mercy to rescue souls that are in danger. If you were at the beach and you were at a little beach party and there was a fire pit and your phone drops in the fire, oh, you're going in to get it. You're not going to go, yeah, I want to I see if I can get a little more toasty before I you know, get that out of the fire. No, no, it's not a marshmallow. It's just your phone and you know how much you like that. You like, you do it now. The, the rescue is now. This is the people that are in trouble, and they haven't just been wavering about the opinions of the false teachers and their ungodly lifestyles. They've adopted them, and they've started to believe those, and they have turned. Their heart has turned, and they're going the wrong way. They're going down the low road of error. They're, they're, they're swerving from the truth, and, and the merciful church needs to, to snatch them out of the fire. It takes more than going, well, I hope they make it. I'm going to pray for them. No, you, before the cement sets and they're fixed in error, you rescue their soul from danger. This is like people in the ICU. 24-hour care. There are people who have spiritually adopted false doctrines and lifestyles, and they need to be watched carefully. They need to be told they need to be fed often just like being in icu medicine and nurture and attention and if you're in NICU, if you're in the baby icu in the newborn icu you need to you need to take action and there needs to be someone watching and there needs to be words and actions that real help before that cement sets this is why paul told timothy you keep a, a close watch on yourself and on your teaching Persist in this, and you will save both yourself and your hearers, meaning you're going to put them under the hearing of the gospel so that God would save them. You know, rescue people from telling them the truth, because you told them the truth. So remind the doubting, rescue those in danger, and then the third point, this is at, you know, at the bottom of, this is, the cliff goes down, it's at the very bottom of the cliff. Refute the defiled. This does not mean that you go angry at them and that you call them out and that you tell them how wrong they are. It says to have mercy, look at verse 23, to, to others show mercy with fear. This is 2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. Show mercy with fear, hating, detesting, literally, even the garment, which is the, the word for tunic or undergarment, it's the, it's the garment in those days that would be worn closest to the skin, 
hating even the garment stained by the flesh, literally, that has spots on it, that's, that's polluted with something that's not supposed to be there, something that is defiled. The Hebrew word for this means filthy, literally means excrement. It, it's unclean. You stay away from it. it. This is like the Levitical laws that say, here's what you do in this case, and here's how they are ceremonially unclean for a while, and you need to stay away. This is talking about someone's sin that is so heinous, you need to watch yourself so that you don't fall into that same pit. This also harkens back to Zechariah 3, where again, Joshua is standing before the angel, and he is clothed with filthy garments, It's signifying his sin. And the angel says to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity from you. Mercy, forgiveness of sin. I will clothe you with pure garments. So there's someone involved with sinful living. There's someone involved with false teaching. And those often go together. And you're not angry. You're not mean-spirited. You're merciful and kind knowing the fear of the Lord. Isaiah 64 tells us we've all become unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Jesus says whatever comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and defiles a person. James says the tongue even defiles us. Paul tells the Thessalonians, admonish the unruly. That's what this is. This is admonishing the unruly. What he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, there's your doubter, help the weak, there's the one that needs to be plucked out of the fire, be patient with them all. So as you're admonishing, you're being patient. It's this picture of gentle and firm correction. This is the idea of hating the sin and loving the sinner which is an overused cliche, but this is the place in the Bible where you say, that's what this means. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Hate what they're doing. Hate the false teaching that they're adopted. Hate the false, the, the godly lifestyle that they have been living, but love them. Where you would never condemn them. But you're also not condoning their sin. You're also not celebrating their sin. This is where if someone's a declared disciple of apostasy, you handle with fear because they're highly contagious. We know what it means to live in an era where there are highly contagious things going on. There's always have been, but today we are so fearful of contagion. And yet I think you have to ask yourself, so does this mean that I put up with anything and everything and I just have to kind of go, well, I'm going to be merciful and just kind of ignore things. Not at all. In fact, it might get to the point where you need to cut ties. And that's a hard question. When do you cut ties? Because sometimes it is appropriate with professing believers, and again, with professing believers who persist in unbiblical beliefs and ungodly lifestyles that you need to make a wise judgment call. Paul told the Thessalonians, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note and have nothing to do with them, that they would be ashamed. Paul told the Corinthians this, he says, I wrote you not to associate with sexually immoral people. And he clarifies, because some people had taken it in the wrong way. And he says, not the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or the swindlers, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
He says, but, but I told you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. They're, they're saying, I'm a believer, and I can believe this and do that. Don't associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard or a swindler. And then he says, don't even have a meal with them. Don't even eat with them. And this is speaking of a person who is unrepentant. Paul also told the Corinthians, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. This is Jude saying, have mercy with fear. Have mercy with fear. How do you do that? It's tough, you know, and is there only three categories of people, and can someone be in category one and category two or three at the same time? You know, I would say it's not a one-size-fits-all situation here. And I want to give you some ideas on how you can be merciful. First, you need to connect relationally. You need to connect relationally. The gospel requires you to be merciful if you're a believer, where you understand the depths of your sin, where you look upon others with compassion, not condemnation, and you're merciful to fellow sinners. You know you've received mercy. You know that God is, is the merciful judge, that, that he, sin, he judged your sin at the cross on Christ, your substitute, your mercy seat, the sacrifice for your sins, and you recognize the majesty of God. You recognize the greatness of God in the gospel, and you say, wow, none are innocent. I'm not innocent. All need mercy. Sin has ruined every soul. And then what you do is you connect relationally. You, you talk with those who are doubting. You, you talk with those who are in grave spiritual danger more urgently. You, you, you speak with those who are diametrically opposed to gospel truth. You don't shun them. You don't stay away from them. If they're professing to be a believer, you need to engage them relationally. Ask them questions. Listen compassionately. Give them solid answers but maintain your relational connectedness while not, again, condemning or condoning or celebrating their sin, which we all know is a tightrope, right? God knows. And don't give up biblical ground. You don't give up biblical ground, which you will be maligned for, you will be misunderstood for, but what you need to do is you connect relationally. You calmly reflect the love of Christ as you connect with people that are in that are in the same trouble you know you've been in. Secondly, you need to co comfort them in Christ. As you're connecting relationally, you need to comfort them in Christ. Speak the truth without fear, in love. Direct them to Jesus by a solid handling of Scripture. That's how you counteract quackery. That's how you counteract false teaching and sinful lies and this propensity to, to, to wander away in error from God's Word. You just fill the tank up with God's Word. Don't, don't, don't let your mind draw you away. Don't let the culture twist the gospel message. You are to be filled with the Spirit. If you want to be merciful, you need to be filled with the Spirit of God, full of the Word of Christ, and then do what it says. And let the Word of God dictate the direction. Let the Word of God drive the conversation and to help others, to, to bless others. Because when, you when you're going to be merciful, it's because you want to help others, and you have an immediate immediate concern for their well-being and you take action to help them. So you tell, you tell people, you know what? The Lord's strength is made perfect in our weakness. You tell people that Jesus said that all that the Father gives me will come to me and, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. That Jesus said, 
I will never leave you or forsake you. God has said, I, I will never leave you. I'm, I'm with you always. So as you connect relationally, you need to comfort them in Christ. Give them the word of God. But one last thing, you also need to correct wrong thinking. It's not enough to say, well, I'm connected relationally and I'm trying to bring in some, plant some seeds and what have you. You need to correct wrong thinking and inaccurate ideas. You need to love them enough to tell them the truth carefully. Where you have mercy, but you're cautious and you're careful not to be defiled by error. And, and when you care, you can often become in danger if you're not anchored firmly in the word of God. So what you do, you call people to faith and repentance and obedience. And when you forget that, when you forget that you need to correct wrong thinking and call people to faith and repentance and obedience, you can do all sorts of silly things. You need to tell them the truth of God unvarnished. Tell them you don't deserve God's grace and mercy, but you don't earn it. Tell them you can't go solo and live a healthy Christian life and persevere. Tell them you need to attend a local church. You need to get connected with people. Tell them you need to be around people that admit their need for Christ. Tell them choose good friends who point you to Christ. You tell them choose to do what is right. Tell them say no to sin. And by the way, every one of us is ashamed of our sin. Tell them we are all struggling with our sin. Confess your sins. When you confess your sins to God, he is faithful and righteous and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Tell them there is misery in sin, but there is mercy in the Savior. Tell them surrender to God's sovereign sufficiency. Just be merciful to fellow sinners. Remind the doubting. Rescue those in danger. Refute the deviled those that are walking down the low road of sin and veering off that path of righteousness and swerving from the truth, come close, connect relationally. Comfort them in Christ. Correct wrong thinking. What you need to do if you want to be merciful is be the most accessible and merciful person for those struggling with doubts to go to while being careful not to be defiled but being part of a loving community that is mercifully keeping watch as we're doing the building up in the word of God and the praying for the will of God and waiting for the son of God to return. Because sometimes we, we get caught up in the riptide of sin and we can drift further away from the Lord. It can happen to any of us. And when that happens, you need a merciful rescue. And therefore, you need to be merciful to all. There's always someone in need of rescue. So it's like the Red Cross, right? It's like, a, it's like medics in war. They'll help anybody. It's like police and firefighters. They'll help anyone. It's like lifeguards rescuing those caught in a riptide. Mercy means you're going to take compassionate action. Just like Jesus because mercy acts. You don't see mercy used in the Bible apart from action. Jesus had mercy and fed them. Jesus had mercy and touched their eyes. Jesus had mercy on the crowd and healed their sick. Jesus had mercy and touched a coffin. The prodigal father had mercy. He saw the misery and, and the repentance and had mercy and ran to his son. 
you need mercy, not, not justice on the day you meet Christ. So you must show mercy. While you wait for Christ's ultimate mercy, as you're drenched in ever new mercy day by day, be merciful. Be merciful. Lord God, we thank you that your mercy is never ending. And thank you that gospel preaching to our own hearts and our own homes, to the church and to the world is a merciful act where we declare that Jesus mercifully saves repentant souls. Lord, we praise you that you rescue the doubting and you rescue those in danger and you you rescue those defiled by sin. You save. And we acknowledge that we are a bunch of nobodies, broken nobodies, celebrating you, celebrating the somebody who was merciful to anybody who would bow before your throne. We praise you, Lord. We, we, we know there is misery in our sin, but thank you, Jesus, that you have mercy on us. Please use us, Lord, to mercifully help others for your glory, that, that others would even say with us, wow, God is merciful. Wow, the sovereign Savior spares sinners. Wow. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.